0: Welcome to the newly cleansed and refreshed In The Game podcast, where we invite you to transform your dreams into reality. Every week, we aim to touch, move, and inspire you to new possibilities for your life. My name is Sarah Maxwell, and is it really time for me to now intro my own show? Heck no! Bring in the Aussie talent to get it done. With their groundbreaking first season as The Nat and Sarah Show, the foundation has been laid for a life of manifesting your dreams. Join us as we delve into the nuts and bolts of what it really takes to bring those dream boards into reality. It's time to dust off your dreams and get back in the game of life. Are you a member of the community? Head to Facebook and search In The Game Podcast to download your three-step journal to begin the workshop-style teachings and gain exclusive access to your hosts and featured guests. Get ready to take action on your possibility. Today, we continue the conversation with the CEO and founder of AI company Castle Point Systems, whose vision it is to change the way the world manages information so that people, communities, and companies are safer and smarter. Rachel Greaves is an industry expert in information and records compliance, control and security. She recognized a problem that was not being addressed in the marketplace around the enormous influx of data that companies and organizations and even governments are facing. And for many, it just seems too big, too overwhelming. So their information remains exposed and at risk because really there was no viable option for them. In comes the feisty Rachel in her 30s she has five kids, by the way, and husband, Gavin, to solve one of the biggest issues facing business worldwide. They may have lacked much of the expertise to pull this off, but they did it anyway. And I'm so grateful that we have moments with Rachel. As you can imagine, the mother of five kids, by the way, one of them's quite young, building a billion-dollar engine, doesn't have extra moments. So thank you so much, Rachel. We are totally pumped to talk to you.
1: Thank you so much. I'm so excited.
0: Woo! So Castle Point Systems isn't the first foray that you've had into the business world. And I thought I wanted to give the listeners a sense of the incredible woman they're going to hear from even, you know, poised and calm about everything. But like, I know things didn't start out that way. So as you were growing up, when people asked you what you wanted to be when you grew up as a little girl, what did you do you remember what you used to say?
1: Yeah, I don't think I really had a clear idea of what I wanted to be, but there's a few things that sort of spring to mind. And, and one is when I was um, reading something legal, It had been some kind of uh, legal outcome or something like that, and I heard it on the news or I read it in a story maybe. I read so many stories as a kid. Um, and it just occurred to me that the way that language was chosen had an incredible impact on the outcome and the meaning that you could be really specific with how you use language and it would completely change the meaning or the intention or the outcome of something really, really important. And I thought, I want to be a lawyer. That sounds great. And then I grew up and I thought, I don't really want to be a lawyer. (laughs) It doesn't actually sound so great after all. But I knew I wanted to do something around language. So um, that's what I ended up doing at, at university.
0: You've got me thinking about my five-year-old who has always had language and often asks me to differentiate small things that I might say that I didn't even realize I was saying, like she picks up on words within words, for example. Um, were you like that growing up? Were you quite
1: linguistic? Like, were you known for that? Yeah, 100%. Um, I all, all I did, my real hobby was reading. I loved to read and I read, you know, above my grade level and I read way too much stuff. I just read and read and read. It was just something I really enjoyed and um, I, it should have actually made me an outsider um, but for some reason it endeared me to people. And I remember starting at a new school when we moved to London and um, I'm a very naturally introverted person I'm like quite an anxious person I certainly was as a kid and I was very very shy and I remember I would just sit at recess with just my nose in a book and not interact with the other kids and after a couple of days I was just surrounded by other little girls sitting there reading their books ostensibly, but actually like peeking at me to see what I was doing, you know, they just were so attracted by this, you know, Australian girl who just came and sat down and read books, they all wanted to be involved in that. And that's how I ended up making friends. So I just been lucky I think to be able to enjoy something like that that's so accessible you know anyone can read um, hopefully at any time and the worlds you can be in and the things you can learn when you're a a a fast reader who enjoys reading really can take you a lot of places.
0: I love that that's really it's a really lovely thing to say about people who are more introverted and quieter and that there's a place for everyone to just be who they are and so this idea around compliance and control and the security elements of what you became expert in, when did that start to arise? When did you start focusing in on things like that and why?
1: So I think that the beginnings of my career in compliance came as a natural extension of that interest in reading and in language. So um, when I went to university, uh, I I had I had the marks to do kind of anything, and I remember my dad said, "Oh, you should do law. You should do medicine. Like you, you can do that." I'm like, yeah, I don't want to do that. I want to do anthropology. So for some reason, when I enrolled in my arts degree with a major in anthropology and then in the first year I thought I need to I need to fill in my other units and one of the units I chose was Roman history I thought everyone needs to know something about Roman history and I know nothing despite all the reading I had done uh, I thought I'll do this unit and I just was absolutely blown away and yes it was the content I really liked learning about it but it was the professor he was so engaging and I thought this is amazing this is what I want to do and in my second semester I I switched I still did the anthropology major but then I took up a classics major which meant Roman history and Latin and Greek so then I spent most of university translating Latin And out of that kind of the rigour in learning those rules of the language and the time that it takes and and how careful you have to be choosing the right word, you know, just like I'd, I'd sort of intuited when I was a little kid that the choice of word is so important, that really gave me a foundation in what has become a compliance career because reading legislation and regulation is the same it's it's interpreting and it's applying rigor and applying rules and then turning that into something tangible you know translating it into a different language so now i translate the language of regulation into words that the business can understand but also into code that a computer can understand it's the same that is like
0: the coolest definition and experience ever like just that link between language, like you just said it, you know, people like me who don't know how to code, for example, for a computer, it just looks like a foreign entity. But when you just said that, I was like, well, actually, I do speak another language. And I did have to learn all the rigor of the rules of French, for example, and how to conjugate verbs and everything. Okay, that's super interesting. So when you left school, and firstly, did you travel to any of these countries that you were studying? rigorously?
1: No, I've never been. I really wanted. Really? No, I've been to, um, we lived in the UK for a while and I've been to France, but um, when I was at university, I really treated it like a a job. My partner at the time did have a job at the university. He worked nine to five. And when I started at uni, I was still underage because I'd skipped a grade. So when everyone else was going to the uni bar and drinking and socializing, I couldn't. So right from the very beginning, I treated university like a nine-to-five job. I must have been so irritating. I remember going around to all the tutors at the start of semester, have you got the materials ready yet? Are they ready yet so I can start studying? They were like, go away, you keen girl. Um, But (laughs) because because I was so focused on it, I never took that gap year, you know. And when I was doing my degree, then I went straight into honours and then I went straight into work and I just never really had the opportunity to to take that break um and I think that's okay you know Uh, okay so would you say
0: it was like a thirst for the subject matter or was it did you have a desire to be
1: great at things to to excel which one dominated that too um I do like to be the best at things it's true but I think it's kind of um a sense of achievement that you get when you really master something. I think everyone actually has that. Some people have it in their sport, some people have it in video games. I've never understood how my, you know, boyfriends when I was a teenager could sit there and play the same video game level and die and then go back to the beginning and play it again and die. I could never do that, but they could never understand why I would spend hours and hours and hours like conjugating verbs and memorising, you know, synonyms and things in a different language because we all just want to achieve something and be good at it. It doesn't really matter what it is. I think if you've got that drive to do something really well, you'll turn that to anything that takes your interest. And that's why you can be a high achiever and not have to go and do law or do medicine because whatever you choose to do, if you enjoy it, you'll do it really, really well and then you'll be successful in whatever that domain ends up being.
0: So tell me how that um, way of being, you know, uh, the word that comes up for me is excellence you know bringing this mastery and excellence to things that you do so when this problem like where did you start to see this problem that castle point systems could solve when did that start coming up for you um and did you start tell me the process of when you started to see the problem how you thought you could be part of the solution
1: yeah sure so i think I ended up in IT just by accident. It was one of the first jobs I was offered out of university, just basically doing support, sales support and channel management for an IT company. So from there, I ended up moving into other IT roles and then into government in IT. And I don't have any STEM background. You know, still my only degree is in in classics and and agriculture. But it doesn't matter because when you start working in that domain, um, the the skills that I learned were business analysis and then project management. So out of that, I ended up analysing and managing large-scale IT projects. And when you're project managing, you can see that things aren't working. You can see either that you're not achieving the scope, you know, the outcome you were trying to achieve, or that you're not able to do it in the time, or you're not able to achieve it within the budget and the resources that you have. And that continually came up, you know, that comes up in every project, but that consistently came up in projects around information management. As an analyst too, what ended up happening was that I was asked to audit these projects that had been consistently failing. So looking at, as a project manager, you can see structurally while they're failing and looking at them as an analyst, you can see sort of procedurally or systemically why they're failing. And what it turned out was they just never could have succeeded. You know, when you break it down and look at the component parts, they never could have fit together. So what organisations were trying to do is say, okay, on the one hand we have all of this information um, and on the other hand we have all of these rules and we need to apply all of those rules which are actually binding legal rules that have civil and criminal penalties if you don't apply them we have to apply all those rules to all this information how will we do that so most systems require you to put the information, all that information into their system so that it can be managed. And that just can't work. You know, we don't want to use one system. We all want to use a different system for different parts of our job at different parts of of the day. You know, we want to use cloud systems and line of business systems and email. We don't want to centralise all our information. So that never could have worked. Um, And then the other approach was, well, we should just try to connect the systems that you like to use to these central regulatory systems and we'll move the data around and um, we'll change your user experience in your system to fit in. Well, that can't work either because once we hook them together, we can't really upgrade one without upgrading the other. There's just too much technical risk in integrating like that. So then the other approach we see is we'll just train everyone in the business to understand all these thousands of rules and make the right decisions about all their information and classify it and add metadata. I don't even need to tell you why that can't work. So essentially none of the models could ever have worked and it doesn't matter what new technology you buy or what colour it is or how fancy it is. If the underlying model is broken, it can never succeed. Mm We saw that in all these audits and we saw it more broadly, you know, in National Audit Office audits and inquiries into why are all these things failing and costing so much money and having such a detrimental impact. There were some really, really serious impacts of this in Australian government. One was um, a woman called um, Vivian Salon. She was an Australian citizen. She was a vulnerable woman with a mental illness and she was found in a park, actually, in Lismore with a head injury um, and she was sort of scooped up by the authorities and without really any evidence they decided that she was um, not a citizen and they deported her to the Philippines and she was left in a home for the dying and destitute. But the fact was she was a citizen and her records were in the departmental system. They just couldn't find them. What? So woman, I know, she was deported and there was an inquiry that came out of it. And and after that, it was found this had happened in other places as well. So you might have seen an ABC series recently called Stateless about Cornelia Rao, another Australian permanent resident, I believe, who was locked in immigration detention, partly because they couldn't relate her records from one system to another to determine who she actually was. And the Department of Health had a similar issue. They implemented a, a regulatory information management system. I think it took about nine years, and it cost maybe five dollars. I know. Um, so the audit office were very interested in that, and they audited that project. And they did a really simple test. They put, I think, a hundred documents into the system, and they asked the business to go and find those hundred documents. And they could only find, I think, eighteen of them. So they'd effectively lost eighty percent of the data by putting it in this compliance system. So we've seen this at scale. when we're trying to regulate information, we're basically losing the information, and that has actually catastrophic impacts on real people. Mm. So we have to do it differently, and that's why we developed our solution.
0: You, you had it's great. thank you for bringing real examples to what this solves because I thought about criminal, criminals who who commit huge crimes, we then hear about this back history of things that they've done and how it's like the systems don't talk to each other. So they don't sort of see that person in the entirety. And then something huge happens. And you think, why was this person allowed to roam the streets? And to me, that sounds like an information issue in itself. And yeah, so I, I get it. And you know, just having, I'm a Canadian in Australia and I always have thought about how it doesn't seem that customs speaks to the police and speaks to the health and speaks to getting fines from your car. Like there's sort of these um, gaps all the time. So yeah, thank you yeah. for bringing real examples because yeah, clearly you're doing, you're working with big projects. So as you're seeing, okay, so you're auditing, right? or you're analyzing some problems in old systems, what creeps up? I'm so curious of the mind that you have that you see a problem and some people just stick in that, relay the information, problem, problem. But you start thinking about how you could make it different. Tell me a little bit about that moment when you started, maybe you went home to your husband and said, you know, Han, we can do something about this. I don't know. How does it work for you?
1: Yeah. So I think that that kind of actually even goes back to that Latin degree, right? Because when you, when you write your thesis, which I, which I did when I did my honours, you have to come up with an original idea. So my original idea was having read this this poem by this Latin epic poet, I noticed something in all of those words that nobody had ever noticed before, and that's what became the basis of the thesis, this original idea that a pattern that nobody had seen. And then behind that, the statistical analysis to basically count how many times that happened in this poem versus how many times it happened in contemporaneous writing and then like maybe the Iliad and the Aeneid, like how how is this actually different? Let's get the evidence. And that is the skill set I think that you need to, to innovate and solve problems in any arena. You've got to be able to look at the big mess of information end to end and see something that other people haven't seen yet or if they have seen it, they haven't been able to evidence it. They haven't taken the time to get the evidence and the data points that prove their intuition and that's what we did Gavin and I did when we were faced with this problem that came up because Gavin and I were auditing these projects together that's how we met actually oh wow okay Um, him from the technology side and me from the business side so I saw the big picture looking at this and then I had the idea I thought look what This needs to be as a different way of managing information. Number one, we have to leave it where it lives. We can't be moving things around. It damages the integrity of the data. It's not a safe thing to do. So it has to stay where it is. It has to have no impact on the users. If people have to be trying to apply regulations, number one, they won't be happy about it. Number two, they probably won't do it. And number three, if they do it, they'll do it probably wrong. Wrong. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, like there are a lot of different regulations and a lot of them conflict with each other. So how can we do this? You know, here's here's the big mess and here's the innovative idea. We're going to have a model where we have essentially a castle, you know, in the middle of our network kingdom and from the castle, we can have kind of a command and control position across that whole network. And we can watch what happens out there in the kingdom. And we don't need to bring those people or their processes or their data inside the castle walls to protect them. Mm. As long as they're inside the walls of the kingdom, we can protect them from the center, we can regulate them centrally. That was the innovative idea.
0: And it's an old what an idea. Awesome analogy.
1: Good. It's the old it's an idea as old as time, right? There's yeah. been castles like that having command and control over kingdoms forever. So the idea isn't new, but the way to apply it to information was new. But then what we had to do is get the evidence. So we did lots of investigation, reading all these inquiries, all the audits, looking at all the data, understanding all the regulatory rules and turning that essentially into the model for the technology. And what was required of you and your husband to take
0: this idea, innovative idea, and even your information that um, the proof and, and create your own business, you know, like what was, were there any challenges for you and like what comes up? Because I can see the, I can see some talents, but I'm sure there were other things required of you that you maybe weren't as used to.
1: Yeah. I mean, it is, it is, It is really challenging setting up any kind of business, I think. And um, firstly, you've got to have a solid idea that is evidence-based, which luckily we did. And when you're doing regulatory technology, luckily people have already written the requirements for you because they're in the law. You know, somehow I ended up still kind of being a lawyer after trying not to for so many years because what I spend all day doing is reading law and regulations. The rules are in there and they're very clear about how we have to manage the information. So we didn't need to come up with that. We just needed to take that big catalogue of rules and work out how do we apply all of these rules to, to any kind of information in any kind of system with no impact on those systems and no impact on those people managing the systems and it was easy, you know, comparatively for me to come up with that framework. This is what it must do and this is what it must not do. Gav, it go. <laughs> and that's his job then that he had to do. So luckily he's just... Was a- that
0: hard for him? Did he, was he like, from his side, was he like, oh my goodness, honey, like, you know, <laughs> is it like building those toys that your kids bring home and all of a sudden you're supposed to set them up? It's you
1: know, kind of like building IKEA furniture. Maybe. That's it. Thank you. That's uh, what I had in mind. <laughs> but um, it it should have been really hard. It should have been impossible. It is really hard. But he's just so clever, you know. But I think also part of it is that um, when you're on the same wavelength as your partner, whether that your partner in business or otherwise, and in our case it's both, um, you understand the intent. Mm-hmm. And once he understands the intent, it's much easier for him to come up with the solution. So I can completely trust him that he's architected it in the smartest way because he understands the intent, you know, and I understand the intent of what he's architected so I can tweak and design requirements to fit that. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it, it was really hard. And and the reason that it's hard is because when you've got kids, obviously, and we've got five all together, when you combine them all, you um, you, you need to prioritise them first. So the way you start up a new software company like this is you essentially bootstrap it. You know, you do your day job and the money that you earn from the day job you put into developing the software. And that's what we had to do. So we do our kind of nine to five, still auditing and consulting together and um, any kind of money we made from that we put into developing the software um, and the time. So you do your nine to five. Um, And then you, you know, look after your kids and then you do the second shift from 9 p.m. to 1am and then you sleep a little bit. And we're still doing that realistically. You know, we have-
0: How many years did you do that? Like, thank you for introducing that idea because I think some people think they're so black and white. They think I'm either in my nine to five or I'm jumping into Castle Point systems. No, no, that's not how that happened. There's a transition. Well, you're still transitioning, I guess Mm -hmm. you're saying.
1: That's right. I, th- I think you really need to do both. I think some people they have a great idea and they go and get a backer, and that backer, that investor, will pay them to develop that idea, um, which is which is great. But usually that backer wants the equity. So what we chose to do instead is keep our own equity and and um, develop the solution ourselves. So we held off investment until very recently. Um, but what that means is, yep, you've got to do your job. So, kind of an average day for us then and still is, you know, wake up when the kids wake up, which can be, I mean, my baby's just started sleeping through the night, but can be any time. Um, and then, you know, we feed them and look after them and get them off to school. And we actually rented an office right opposite the school so that we can actually come and park it. It's great. Walk over to the school, spend that quality time. Walk back, get the steps up. You know. And then we'll work here in the office and then um, one or both of us will leave and go in different directions at, you know, 2.30 in the afternoon to go and do pickups. So you've got to get one from this school and one from the childcare and one from the high school and one from over there and then they've got their sport and, you know. So to be honest, like 2 or 3 p.m. until 8 or 9 p.m. is kid time. And that's another full-time job, you know, which means you have to then have another shift. So we'll normally then work again like 8, 9 p.m. through to maybe 12, 1, 2 a.m. and then do it all again in the morning from 6. So... Okay,
0: hold on. So that was very systematically described. Mm -hmm. Now tell me about being human and do you ever get, do you ever fall asleep with one of the kids do you ever get super mm-hmm. tired? Do you ever say, Gavin, I don't want to do it tonight? Like, yep. tell me about any of that.
1: Hey, Dev, I don't want to do it anymore. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Who thought up this silly
1: idea? I just want to watch The Crown. Exactly. To- Thank you. Yep. And sometimes you just <laughs> need to sleep. Yeah. But it is hard because sometimes Gav will fall asleep with, with one of the kids and I want to let him sleep. And a little voice inside is like, go and wake him up. We've really got <laughs> that deliverable done. And you have to push it down, you know. You have to go, this man is getting four and a half hours sleep a night for the last three years. Mm. It's not sustainable, but so far we're sustaining it. Mm-hmm. We not push it, you know. Every now and then we're going to have a nap and that's okay and that's fine. But at some point, like, you think at some point it'll get easier, you know, but I, I don't think it does. I think... As something gets easier, you just take on something else that makes it harder. And I think you just maintain the level that you're operating at for as long as you can.
0: Because I get the sense at the moment that you've moved into this domain, and maybe you haven't for years here, but going, you're in the marketplace now, letting people know what you have to offer, you know, and I'll call it sales because it is, you're selling it, you know, the value to others. Um, Who's the salesman? or saleswoman in this couple and has that been how what's that been like for you guys
1: yeah it's it's been me essentially so it used to be the the both of us um and the first way we started essentially selling the product is we we sold it where we were already consulting
0: okay
1: we say hey guys who we're already working with what if we use our product that we've developed to help do this Project and they were like, Yeah, let's do it. So, the first few times you implement, you do it for free, you know. Yeah, they're letting you experiment on their data and they're getting value out of it. So, um, we were just lucky that we had clients who were like, Yeah, let's do it. Let's do the thing. Um, So, it was the two of us essentially going around and telling the story. Um, And that's actually really key because You've got to have a technical person ready to answer technical questions. There's a lot I don't understand about um, all the depths of technology, um, but you've also got to have a subject matter expert in the regulatory side there mm-hmm. because, to be honest, if if we just sent a sales guy to go talk to clients and someone asked a question that they couldn't understand um, and therefore couldn't answer, well, that's the end of that. That's the sale, yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's really tempting to go, God, this takes so many hours of our time. Um, let's get someone else to do it. But I'm glad that we didn't. These days it's it's me mostly. Yep. Um, and then Gab in the sort of second round as people have those more technical questions. And we've got some other really amazing people in our team now too who are part of that kind of business development process. But, you know, you're right, we can't sort of go out and just spruik to any and everyone for two reasons. The first one being that we already are struggling to service the demand that we have. You can't go out and just let's go advertise in a magazine in the in the continental United States, right? Because what happens if they all want it? What then?
0: <laughs> we well, I did see on your LinkedIn, which people can have a look, all the clients that you had. And I literally was thinking, how are they servicing all of them? Like, tell me about even team acquisition. Like, You have this amazing team with, you know, I I saw you this quoted, you know, 100% satisfaction in psychological safety from every team member Mm -hmm. back in May. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. So how do you get team so fast? Like, how have you done that? And has that been any, have there been any challenges there?
1: Yeah, there, there are always challenges there with growing a team. Um, we've been very conservative in our hiring. We haven't gone out and offered, you know, here's top dollar for you, fancy person, come and join our company. Um, at the moment, the C-suite is me and Gab essentially under C-everything O um, and, <laughs> and Gav is the CTO. Um, what we invested in is younger people that have the right kind of fit So the first person we found is our program manager. She's straight out of university, um, straight HDs, masters, you know, um, did it all in a second language because she's actually French. And when she first came to Australia, she was certainly not fluent. She felt like she struggled. She doesn't struggle. But she's got the same kind of drive that Gab and I do, the same kind of personality type. And What we have found is that through her we found other people that she had worked with at the university that she had a strong rapport with that she thought would be a fit. turns out, yeah, they're a great fit. And through them, we find other people who were referred. So you've got to be very careful working from referral because you can just end up with too much of the same person because people tend to know other people like them. Um, But we've been really lucky in that um, our team is extremely diverse. So I think we're still around 70% women in our team. And actually, me, Gav, and Charlie, maybe, um, uh, and one other, I think, are the only um, Australian-born team. We've got, you know, two Colombians, Venezuelan. We've got one from France, two from India, one from China, Um, plus our interns, you know. um, So the diversity has been really, really key. But the, the core thing is that everyone has the same essential fit in terms of values. and that's what makes
0: it work oh my god yeah that's cool I mean I'm obviously a foreigner living in the land so I think that's pretty cool um you know I realized speaking with you is amazing and really fascinating so much so that I never even looked at how long we've been talking That's that's a sign, actually, because it just went like that. And I actually have so many more questions, but I will wrap it there because I want people to get the sense of a real person solving a real problem and the steps. Like, I thought you described that really beautifully, even in terms of being a parent and, and how you're doing that. And the last thing I want to just share with people is, you know, just letting them know that as poised as you sound it isn't always as poised as you sound is that right
1: I think I probably always sound poised doesn't mean I am
0: oh yeah tell them about winning an ma- that major award and what happened there that that'll be interesting oh, for
1: people yeah, that's like right. that. we actually won I don't know exactly when I spoke to you in that week but we won three major awards in the one week mm-hmm. so I think the first one we won was um the National Peak Body Records Management Award, which was amazing. And then I think we won uh, the ACT Information Industry Award, also amazing. And then we won the Australian Technology Competition Award for cyber. And um, I just was sort of in these back-to-back like video conference, like, yay, congratulations, little speech. Type thing and I think someone asked me afterwards, you know, were you were you nervous? Were you really excited? And I was like, look, actually, I just wasn't really anything. And that doesn't mean it wasn't a massive achievement because it was. It just means that at a certain point, you're kind of depleted in the kind of range of emotion you can feel and express. So um, I sound, in a video conference, I sound really poised and calm all the time. But when I went to the GP the other day, the nurse told me I had a flat affect, right? <laughs> so medically. Different she, words. So right. She's looking at me like you are, you are overtired and it turned out, yeah, I was anemic and all sorts of things, right? You, you have a flat affect. And in the corporate world, that sounds just like poise, Right. I'd recommend if you're, you know, an anxious person that you just get a bit of anemia and you might also find that you sound like
0: <laughs> You still have humor throughout the whole thing,
1: right? That doesn't go away. But I think I think you just kind of learn to just be calm because you actually just get uh, a little bit flattened from being um, working all the time and being tired and giving. You have to give all that energy and um, emotional input to your little kids, so you just end up kind of taking the sharp edges off your own emotional range, and that's actually I think that's okay. You know, part of it yeah, it's just part of it.
0: And and one thing interesting, you know, the different impacts, like some, I was saying poise, she's saying flat affect. What I also thought about is how, when you're really up to something, meaning you and Gavin have had your heads in solving something, you take one step, one step, one step. In some ways, I believe that in, you reflect what it is to be on mission. Yeah. And, and, it reminds me of you know trekking and you you're from the outside people have ideas of the how you're supposed to feel about that you trek the mountain and you got to there and when you're actually trekking for example when you get to the top you're oxygen depleted That's right and apparently you have i've never been to the top top like that but i've heard you don't have even a second almost to take a photo and then you're right into the mission of getting down the mountain for example and that's what it reminded me of, like really wanted people to get the difference between watching something from the sidelines, like this idea of I'm going to have my own business one day and I'm going to, people like you that are actually in it, it it occurs more like what you just said. Yeah, And I, I That's what I wanted people to hear because I know that there's the same thing with people watching sports from the sidelines. Your perception of how it is and how it really is are very different. And I just want people to take next steps with the real facts of how it is. Yeah. Because we we put people on pedestals, we're in awe of it, and to me that's such a detriment because it just stops us from actually solving real-world problems.
1: Yep. No, you're exactly right. It's not one mountain, it's a range. And, and once you're at the top of one, you can just take a little breather, you know, give yourself a pat on the back, and then you've got another mountain to go down and up again. It doesn't, it doesn't end, but if you enjoy the process of yes. the mountains, then you have a happy and successful job, whatever it is, the job that you're doing. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I really, really,
0: really appreciate your time. I do. So thank you.
1: Thank you. Really great to talk to you. We so appreciate you listening to the
0: show. Don't forget to join the community on Facebook by searching In The Game Podcast. There you can download your three-step journal and participate in our weekly live
1: video chats.
0: Hold on, hold on, hold on five stars five stars five stars and then click on write a review link to actually write a review so that you can tell other people that we're legit and even funny maybe a bit serious so if you want to recommend this to someone you have to put your fingers on the keys and send us a review